I distinctly remember hearing someone yell, stop that van. From CBC Podcasts, an investigation into how young men are being recruited and radicalized on the internet. And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian. By a new supercharged form of hate. On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun. A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It is now more than a week since I've heard from you. You are constantly in my thoughts, and you must know how much I long for your safe return. This is the voice of Barbara Cross. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. Meanwhile, Susie and I are thinking of your every waking minute, and you must know you have all our love, always. It's late October 1970, almost a month after her husband, the British Trade Commissioner James Cross, was abducted by the FLQ. After the kidnapping of Cross on October 5th, his abductors left a communique in a mailbox at La Fontaine Park. It set out seven conditions for his release. It demanded that the authorities end all investigation of the FLQ, that it release 23 FLQ convicts, which it considered political prisoners, as well as to provide aircraft and their safe passage to Cuba or Algeria. They wanted some striking mail truck drivers to be rehired, and they also demanded that officials reveal the identity of the informant who had blown the cover on their rural hideout. Oh yeah, and they wanted half a million dollars in gold ingots. All in all, quite a shopping list. The communique also came with an eight-page manifesto and they demanded that it be published and broadcast. These conditions came with a 48-hour deadline. Otherwise, James Cross would be executed. But authorities were not in the mood for concessions. And on October 6th, the federal negotiator rejected the demands out of hand. So cell leader Jacques Langteau and his crew kept firing off communiques. They'd leave them in phone booths or dumpsters and then make a call to one of the radio stations. During the commercial break, they brought me the envelope. I opened it and there was the communique and I had about, what, in the end, 30 seconds to decide what I was going to do. This made for exciting times in the newsroom. Reporters were getting the news faster than the police were. But the authorities wouldn't budge and the kidnappers started to drop demands. Then they were forced to extend the 48-hour deadline for Cross's life. Louis Fournier was a young reporter at CKAC, a popular Montreal private radio station, when all of this was unfolding. Being in the newsroom gave Fournier a front-row seat to the unfolding political drama. And soon he would have his own role in that drama. One evening after work, Fournier received a phone call telling him a taxi driver was on his way to deliver an envelope to his apartment. Half an hour later, as promised, a taxi driver showed up at his doorstep with the envelope. Inside, there were three communiques and an eight-page manifesto. At first, government officials, especially the prime minister, wanted the manifesto suppressed. The last thing they wanted to do was to give the FLQ a platform. So CKAC sat on it for 24 hours. But eventually the government relented and announced that Radio-Canada would air the manifesto the next day. Arguing the public's right to know and a desire to beat their competitors, CKAC decided to broadcast the manifesto right away. And Fournier was the one chosen to read the text. The Front de Libération du Québec is neither the Messiah nor a modern-day Robin Hood. It is a group of Quebec workers who are determined to use every means possible to ensure that the people of Quebec take control of their own destiny. From the moment he read it, Fournier knew that it was a politically significant document. The text was incendiary, and Fournier says he could relate to the realities it described. 
It calls for total independence for Quebec, a new free Quebec, purged of the big bosses they call voracious sharks. And they defend their action as a natural defensive response to the aggression of capitalists and their puppet governments. In very frank ways, it talked about poverty and class struggle in the province. And it urged Quebecois to fight injustice and to take control of their destiny. Even the reading on Radio Canada the following night, which was deliberately delivered in a flat monotone, well, the message comes through loud and clear. It was steeped in Marxist ideology, but it wasn't written for academics. It was in the plain language of working people. It addressed the Prime Minister as Trudeau the faggot, a homophobic slur meant to connect with Joe Lunchpail. Fournier says that even though he was fundamentally opposed to political violence, he felt a burst of emotion reading it. And Fournier wasn't alone. The manifesto hit home for lots of ordinary Quebecers. Governments were scared of what that could mean. And in that moment, it seemed like popular sentiment was gathering around the FLQ. Newspaper editorials appeared, imploring the government to negotiate with the kidnappers. But still, the authorities would not be moved. And now they would double down on the hardline approach. The police came for Louis Fournier just two days after he delivered the FLQ's manifesto on air. They arrived at his home with no arrest warrant. And as it turned out, pretty soon they wouldn't actually need an arrest warrant for that kind of thing. Even with 50 years' perspective, there's still plenty of debate about the lasting political and historical impact of the FLQ. During the seven or so years the group was active, more and more Quebecers embraced Quebec independence. That's a fact. But whether the FLQ's bombs and threats and kidnappings fueled the separatist movement or held it back, that's less clear. But there's one thing the FLQ accomplished that has had unequivocal and lasting resonance. It didn't involve dynamite or guns. It was all about the power of words. A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terror? Vive vive la Révolution québécoise, nous vaincrons! The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. That they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Chapter 7 the War of Nerves. While Fournier was being questioned down at the station, cops searched his apartment and seized a number of documents, including some from the FLQ. They also took away his typewriter. Police asked Fournier if he was a member of the FLQ. He said no, and then he added, I can show you, I don't have a membership card. It was a joke, and as you might imagine, it fell a bit flat with the cops. But they did let him go. It would be three months before he finally got his typewriter back. The short detention was puzzling and unsettling. He was a journalist, after all, but it was nothing compared to what came next. Fournier was back on the job and working the early shift at CKAC the morning of October 16th. His day started at 5 a.m. This was just an hour after the federal government proclaimed the War Measures Act, for the first time since the Second World War. It wasn't long before the phone lines at the station started lighting up, reports of arrests, police showing up out of the blue and taking people into custody. 
10 people, then 20, then 100. The phones would not stop ringing. Alors, c'était une journée assez spéciale, le, le 16 octobre 1976, c'est ça, le matin. All of whom had spoken at the FLQ rally at the Paul Sauvé Arena the night before. With the power to arrest and detain without charge, police were rounding up just about anyone they could connect with the FLQ. It hasn't been so crowded in many years, and the, and the drama is really ripping around the place. The Prime Minister has uh, just been up, and he's explained the reasons for the action, why the War Measures Act has been invoked in this case. He admits it goes On Parliament to... Hill, the atmosphere was tense as the War Measures Act became the centre of debate. Opposition leaders had plenty of criticism for Trudeau, but only one leader directly challenged the implementation of the WMA. Now we have Tommy Douglas. Douglas, you described this as Black Friday. Would you, uh, would you care to elaborate? Well, I think it is Black Friday when uh, government, uh, for the first time in history, uh, invokes the War Measures Act uh, in peacetime. The leader of the Social Democratic Party, the NDP. Means that right now the police at any time can pick up any person who, in their opinion, uh, is a member of an organization that is subversive and illegal. They can hold them for 90 days without bringing them to trial, without giving them any chance to prove their innocence. At the end His of hypothetical the concerns were becoming a reality. Aux dernières nouvelles, sept membres du parti arrêtés à Rimouski, onze à Chicoutimi, onze à Hull, sept à Rouen. Party Québécois leader René Lévesque saw firsthand the implications of the War Measures Act. His volunteers were targeted and arrested across the province. But on October 16th, as citizens and politicians alike debated the merit of the crackdown, police still had no idea where to find James Cross or Pierre Laporte. And then came October 17th. Is there any mention of Cross? It's not confirmed, okay. What you're hearing right now is this remarkable scene unfolding in the newsroom at CKAC. It's footage from a 1973 National Film Board documentary by Robin Spry. It's called Action, the October Crisis of 1970. There's a real behind-the-scenes feel to it, as though someone picked up the camera on a whim. A reporter in the newsroom stops mid-step to ask about James Cross before striding off towards the radio studio, paper in hand, the camera following. There's an air of urgency. Something big has happened. It's rare enough to see camera footage like this from inside a radio station, but even rarer for it to capture a moment like the one that's about to come. It's a Saturday. More than 300 people have already been arrested under the War Measures Act, and Pierre Laporte's family is marking a week since his disappearance. That afternoon, the government agrees to fly the kidnappers to Cuba if they give up Laporte and Cross. There's even a plane waiting for them at Dorval Airport. But earlier that same day, a reporter from CKAC received a message from the FLQ. The FLQ has execution. He reports the discovery of a body, but the name of the victim remains unconfirmed. Then here comes this other reporter just a short time later. He sits down across from the newsreader and he pulls on his headphones. Others crowd into the studio around him. We should like to remind listeners once again that 11.10 p.m. exactly, close to St. Hubert Airport, that the car which was used one week ago to kidnap Pierre Laporte in front of his home on Robitaille Street at St. Lambert was formally identified. By now there's also a rumor that the body of James Cross has been found. Other outlets have been reporting it, but the story hasn't been confirmed yet. At exactly 12.25, or rather at 0.25, or 25 minutes after midnight, the trunk of the car was finally opened and the body of Mr. Laporte was discovered, covered in blood. CKAC, Telemedia, first with the news. We'll be back in a few moments. Norman Maltese, Telemedia, Montreal. 
And with that, the newsreader takes a deep drag on his cigarette, pushes back from the mic, and drops the needle on this album of somber music. The reporter crumples up his copy. They both leave the room. Next, we see Claude Lachance, who witnessed the discovery of the car. She sits to answer questions. She looks haunted. Finding the car with the license number, which they had indicated, it was 90% sure that there was something in it. All the police told us was that there was something very heavy in the trunk of the car. And they opened it, and uh, the policeman who opened the trunk, he was from the bomb disposal unit. And they opened the trunk, and they said that there was indeed a man in the trunk. So all we could see was some white clothes with bloodstains on them. And then, a few minutes later, uh, the men from the identification squad arrived, and they removed the clothes, and we recognized the body of Laporte. Laporte's wrists were wrapped in blood-stained towels. His cheeks were swollen, his nostrils and lips bloodied. Then she's asked about the communique, which she remembers almost by heart. Faced with the arrogance of the federal government and of its lackey Borassa, the FLQ decided to take action. Mr. Pierre Laporte, Minister of Unemployment and Assimilation, was assassinated this evening at 18 minutes past six. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau once again takes to the airwaves to address the country. Well, it was shock and consternation, I believe, that all Canadians have learnt of the death of Mr. Pierre Laporte who was so cowardly assassinated by a band of murderers. René Lévesque is at Parti Québécois headquarters in Montreal when he gets the call. Lévesque is devastated. Laporte, Trudeau and Lévesque were from the same generation. They'd met each other at the journal Cité Libre in the early 60s. And they'd taken separate paths. But despite their differences, Lévesque and Laporte had remained friends. And now, one of them is dead. The following day, René Lévesque holds a press conference. Ceux qui froidement et délibérément ont exécuté Monsieur Laporte. Those who coldly and deliberately executed Mr. Laporte after seeing him live and hope for so many days are inhuman, he says. Those murderers, Lévesque adds, have imported methods such as blackmailing and assassination and fanaticism that will never be justified in a society like Quebec. For many, that was a turning point. Lévesque was drawing a clear line between the Parti Québécois and the radical separatist movement. It might have saved the party and the cause of separatism. Pierre Laporte was buried in Montreal on October 20th. The Mass will be a Gregorian High Solemn Requiem, the same kind one priest said here that was said for President John F. Kennedy seven years ago in the United States. This is Liz Trotta, NBC News, in Montreal. His widow, Francoise, rejected a state funeral. But with so many of Canada's political leaders in attendance, no one was taking any chances. Sharpshooters lined rooftops. Helicopters circled above. Hundreds of soldiers and police officers formed a cordon for the procession. The day before the funeral, a tip had brought police to the little house on Armstrong. In the mess, they found a number of contacts and their details, abandoned versions of communiques, drops of blood, and two orders of barbecue chicken. But no trace of Pierre Laporte's killers. They'd simply vanished. Inside the house at De Recollet, where James Cross was held, the mood was somber. Je me souviens le soir qu'on a appris la mort de M. Laporte, j'ai passé la nuit à pleurer. Mais j'ai vraiment, j'ai pleuré, mais j'étais pas le seul. Jacques Cossette-Drudel was one of the kidnappers. He played a crucial role in the liberation cell. He and his wife, Louise Langteau, Jacques Langteau's sister, helped plan and execute the abduction of James Cross. He says that when he heard news of the death of Pierre Laporte, he spent the night crying. 
En adhérant au FLQ, on n'a pas adhéré à un plan pour assassiner du monde. When he joined the movement, he says, he knew that they were into violent action, attacking symbols, those kinds of things, but he wasn't signing up for assassinations. While he felt anger, that anger wasn't against individuals, it was against a system. Cosette Trudel had come to the FLQ out of frustration with the political situation in Quebec. As a student leader, he'd fought for French rights and higher education. He was outraged by the Brinks affair when a major bank had millions of dollars in securities transferred from Montreal to Toronto in a very public convoy of armored cars. This was Anglo capital flexing its muscles, warning Quebecers ahead of an election of the consequences of sovereignty. He'd been disgusted when Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau had responded to months of demonstrations by banning large gatherings, including protests in the city. And he says the death threats against Cross were just tough talk, showing off. Cosette Trudel believes the police knew that. The FLQ needed bargaining power, and the threat of death gave them that. He points out that his cell dropped the death threat once the manifesto was broadcast. And when they crossed that line, Cosette Trudel says he flipped out. He was done with the FLQ. But of course, it wasn't that simple. He couldn't just walk away. And they had another problem on their hands now. The media had also announced the death of James Cross. That was appalling, and particularly the night when, if I may say so, the CBC announced that I was dead. But those early reports proved wrong. As you can hear from this tape, James Cross was still very much alive. In fact, as of this recording, James Cross is still alive. He's 99 years old. But back on October 17, 1970, he was a hostage in the house on Rue de Recollet, and he was hearing the news of his own death. Well, I was watching it on television. It was all broadcast live. Within days, the FLQ would release proof of life, a picture of Cross sitting on a box of dynamite, playing a game of solitaire. By his side was also a copy of Pierre Valliere's book. In 2010, he spoke to CBC about his experience as a hostage and what it was like for his family. Well, that was, as I say, the horror of it, uh, the real horror. And then a few minutes later, there was that CBC statement. And uh, they announced that I was dead and I was afraid that my wife would, would be watching. And it wasn't until about... One o'clock the next day when a letter they allowed me to write um, got to her to confirm that I was still alive. Cross was already struggling with this situation. Well, I, was, I wasn't abused or beaten or anything like that. But I mean, I was under a sentence of death, which was extremely uh, stressful. Adding to that stress would have been the living arrangements. Imagine being held captive in a small three-bedroom apartment on the bottom floor of a house occupied by seven other people. You can't leave the house. The windows are covered 24-7. The kidnappers are running out of money, so the food is bad, and there's friction within the group. And just to take the tension up a notch, in late October, the leader, Jacques Langteau, well, his wife moves in. She's seven months pregnant and arriving to a house of dynamite, machine guns, and bickering abductors. When the Liberation Cell abducted Cross on October 5th, they thought they'd only be holding him a few days, tops. But the government's hard line put them in a bind, and the negotiations dragged on. So two months later, they found themselves still stuck with this diplomat on their hands and no idea what to do with him. By this point, there was also a $150,000 reward on the table for any tip that would lead to their capture. They didn't want to kill James Cross, but they couldn't bring themselves to free him either. It would have been a public sign of weakness. And to James Cross, the threat of death still felt present and real. The whole time there was the, uh, the constant worry as to what was going to happen, particularly uh, after Laporte was killed. And he had a pretty strong sense of how things were unfolding in the outside world. The television was on all the time. I mean, from about 10 in the morning till about 3 in the next morning. So, you know, news and the papers were coming in. So uh, n news was there all the time. 
for the first few days, I was uh, in handcuffs on the bed, and then I was allowed to sit in the chair. So I stayed in the chair facing the television for, you know, except when I was in bed uh, for the whole time. I think all I did was sort of, as it were, slow down, uh, you know, not try not to get too emotional about anything so that uh, I neither tried neither to get too hopeful or too depressed and tried to sort of maintain a level keel and, and see what happened because, um, you know, there was no way I could affect the outcome of things. Uh, and as the weeks turned into months, James Cross felt increasingly helpless. We did have a few uh, conversations, particularly in the early days before, before Laporte's death. After that, I didn't really want to talk to them very much. But I mean, they were, we would have conversations. I mean, they, were, they got me to write certain letters uh, for the public, and uh, we, we talked to, you know, we discussed what they wanted me to say. And, and again, in the early days, I think we had certain discussions about their philosophies. I was trying to understand what they were all about. I mean, they were uh, like most fanatics. They were just so convinced they were right. They didn't, uh, uh, they didn't have to argue. And they had the gun, which is the, probably the best argument. We can actually give you a really good sense of what those conversations in the house on Rue de Recollet sounded like. That's because the kidnappers believed they were making history and wanted to preserve a document of their accomplishment. And so in the middle of November, they made this recording. It's sort of a political testament. And it's a little bit weird. It sounds like a bunch of intellectuals discussing current events over a cup of tea, rather than, say, terrorists holding someone hostage in the next room. We hear them talk about how the kidnapping of Cross and Laporte is a very beautiful example of collaboration between the two cells. That was a first, they say. They praise themselves for having the best structure and the best organization in the history of the FLQ. It's part rationalization, part myth-making, and for a number of years, this recording would be the only source of information on the inner workings of the liberation cell. They talk about their big victory, the broadcast of the manifesto. For the first time, their message has been heard right across the province without the filter of the media or the authorities. They hope people realize now that they're not bandits or barbarians. And that the public will join them in their fight for a more equal society, a Quebec freed from its political and economic masters. Then they turn their attention to the War Measures Act, proof to them that the real power is in Ottawa, not Quebec. They complain about the federal government overshadowing them in radical action by using the War Measures Act to censor progressive voices in Quebec. Denise Boucher was one of those voices. Bonjour. Hello. My name is Denise Boucher. I'm 84. And... Uh, I'm a poet, and it's snowing today, a beautiful little snow, and we are in December. She also made her name as a playwright, but journalism was paying her bills back in 1970. She was a cultural reporter who moved in intellectual circles. She was close with Gaston Miron, one of Quebec's most important poets. And she had counted the FLQ's ideological leader, Pierre Vallière, as a colleague. And when the War Measures Act came into effect, she took it personally. We have uh, Trudeau trying to make us afraid. And uh, She says the FLQ were trying to make people afraid as well. For weeks, Boucher watched as one friend after another was taken away by police. When she heard that Gaston Miron had been arrested, she went to his home, hoping it wasn't true. His mum was there and told her a story about men storming in, their guns drawn. 
Boucher found a piece of paper mixed in with Miron's belongings. It was a list of names. She took it with her. She was contemplating what to do with it when she ran into a military roadblock. They were looking in every car to, to see if people were not carrying bombs and all that. They are very hysterical. So when I saw that, I said, oh my God. But I thought that image was protective. But I took the paper I have found and I eat it because we never know when they abuse, they abuse. That's right. She ate the list of names she'd found. Boucher hadn't even read it, but that's how paranoid people were in those days, she says. It wasn't long before that paranoia gave way to reality. It was in the 18th of November, the 18th November, and I was prepared to go to a party. It was a place where artists were going. I had a long dress. I always wear a long dress. So there's Denise Boucher in her evening dress, her hair done up, ready to hit the town when the door swings open. They came with the janitor who opened the door for them. And it was an apartment where the telephone was, a, there was a central telephone. And I, I told them, just if somebody called me that I am jail, that uh, without that, I was living alone. There was not, nobody or should have known. So, so you were by yourself? Yes. Can you describe what your feelings were at that moment? Ah, not to lose my mind. Just keep quiet. Look for what is, I'm a journalist. To look what is going on, what is happening. Who are they? Where would they take, the, where they take me? Boucher watched as police grabbed her typewriter and gathered up her papers. They took papers. I have always a lot of papers. Do you know what it is to be a journalist and a writer? That's your paper's life. And then they took her away to the provincial jail. And when I, I arrived at the jail, the guardian, the guards, were women. And they said, oh, they have arrested a woman, a dame. Boucher had had no time to change, no time to grab any personal items. Boucher was held on a floor for women. Everyone was on edge. We were very nervous because they were acting like pigs. They were looking for the, the brothers' roles. Paul and Jacques Rose had disappeared after the murder of Pierre Laporte. So police had brought in their mother and two sisters, Suzanne, who was 16, and Lise, who was 24. They were playing with her, you know. Boucher tells us that she witnessed police abusing Lise in prison, stripping her naked and passing her around in a game called Four Corners. We kept silence because we did not know how to live this abusive situation. It was horrible. Lise Rose would later testify to what she'd suffered, but as far as Boucher knows, nothing ever came of it, which is why she wants it on the record now, all these years later. We were discovering uh, that uh, we were in danger and that we could not trust them. It was terrible to learn that. It's always terrible to learn that we are not safe for everybody. Boucher herself was interrogated a few times. She was asked about her relationships with Pierre Valliere and other cultural figures on the left. They were fascists. Trudeau was no more in direction of this country. He was dominating it like a, a tyrant. What is the name in English for Tyrant. 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 They were always afraid of us, of our, we could provoke a revolution. They were killing on an idea. And 
They were killing an idea. Boucher says she found a different voice in prison, one that drew on the anger she felt and on the strength of the women that she was locked up with. The story of the FLQ was a story about men, after all, for the most part at least, but women were deeply affected by their actions, and Boucher was determined to use that. That uh, we can take a chance to live and to write what we have are in our mind, and not to be afraid to say what we want to say. And I wrote... After all the FLQ trials had wrapped, Boucher wrote a play called The Fairies Are Thirsty. It's about three women, a housewife, the whore, and the virgin, all wrestling to break free of the regressive stereotypes that have imprisoned them and made them invisible. At the time, it was met with calls to be censored, even banned. Boucher was told by one theater director he couldn't stage it because men weren't ready to accept it. That's how Boucher knew she had a hit. It still is. Now, this year, it's playing all around the Quebec. And uh, it's going well. You know, I went. To- when the pandemic shut Quebec's theaters, one Montreal house even took the production online. Boucher is still angry about what happened to her, to her friends, to the women imprisoned under the War Measures Act. You can hear it in her voice. In the end, Denise Boucher spent 20 days in jail, never charged, never offered a change of clothes. She left wearing the same long purple dress she'd arrived in. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents... Hater, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Paydirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast. Shortly after the discovery of Pierre Laporte's body, Provincial negotiator Robert de Maris made a public offer to whomever was holding James Cross. The plane to Cuba was still on offer if they wanted to turn themselves in. After a few weeks, uh, one morning, I had a a bodyguard at the time. And uh, he arrived at my home, uh, as usual. But he said, we think we know where Cross is. The bodyguard's order was to bring Demers to an officer with the Sûreté du Québec, the provincial police. Authorities were pretty sure they knew where Cross was being held. By now, he'd been missing almost two months. Police had identified a house on Rue de Recollet in North Montreal, but they needed proof that Cross was there. So the RCMP planted a pair of officers posing as a couple in the apartment upstairs for surveillance. Then, on December 2nd, out walks Jacques-Cosette Trudel with his wife Louise. They were on their way to drop a communique. On avait préparé un communiqué uh, à déposer uh, uh, à l'ONU sur l'indépendance du Québec. Cosette Trudel says Algeria had agreed to defend the cause of Quebec separation before the United Nations. So they were carrying a communique for the UN. They also had a recording of an interview to be sent to the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who at some point had also agreed to help them. They were arrested as they stepped off a bus at the Henri Bourassa subway station. Back at Rue de Recollet, police were setting up for an operation. And that's when former Montreal bomb squad captain Bob Cote comes back into the story. Can we, park, can we temporarily park in front of this guy here? Okay. Bob's been taking us on a little tour of North Montreal. It's December 3rd, 2019, 49 years to the day that Bob was tasked with a sensitive assignment. So this is where I was parked with my, my unmarked car. Police had been hunting for the car that disappeared with James Cross back in October. They think they've found the house. Now they want to know if the car parked in the garage was the same car that was used to take Cross away. It was Bob's task to find out. Now, 
all, all, this, all the streets were blocked there. Must have been one, one in the morning, December the 3rd. Very, very, very cold. Bob and a colleague pulled over about a block away from the house. Five minutes later, he made a call over the radio. The license plate was registered to a known member of the FLQ. Okay, uh, we, we can move on. We'll go to the house. We drive the block to the house on Rue des Recollets. So that's, the, that's, that's the building. Uh, there was no Bob pulls out a picture of the house from 1970. The, uh, it looks pretty much exactly the same. So Monsieur Cross was held on the ground floor. Two stories, gray brick, nothing to really set it apart in this working-class neighborhood. So with Bob's discovery of the car, everyone's pretty sure they found James Cross. Now they just need to confirm it's actually him, that he's still alive, and then get him out without getting him killed. The, the Montreal police had the phony taxi fleet at the time. We had taxis with, with dome lights, and it looked, it looked like an ordinary taxi, but they, they were used for undercover jobs. First, they evacuate the neighborhood in this fleet of fake taxis. Then, Hydro-Quebec crews cut the power to the street. And then they wait. At 2 a.m., a call comes over the radio. Um, so I say, hey, Bob, there's a metal object that's been thrown from the window. Uh, at a distance, it looks a piece of pipe, and there's something white, and something white is visible at 1 a.m. Okay, so I go there. It turns out the kidnappers had noticed all the activity in the night and spotted a sharpshooter on a nearby rooftop. They'd spray-painted FLQ on a piece of plywood they'd stuck up in a window. In the event that it turned into a shootout, they wanted the world to know who was inside. Now they'd toss something into the street, a short piece of pipe. So Bob puts on his spooner vest, that's the oversized bulletproof vest meant to protect him from a bomb blast, and he directs his partner to drive him over to the piece of pipe. I open the door to pick up the piece with my gloves, of course. Bob directs his partner to speed away from the residential neighborhood on the chance there's a bomb in the pipe. So this is, this is where, yeah, this is, this is, yeah, I'm sure that this is here. They pull up here behind the Saint-Hubert barbecue chicken joint, of course. And then Bob turns his attention to the pipe he's holding. It's not a bomb. It's a message. It was only when I pulled the, the, the communique that we had the confirmation that Mr. Cross was there. That was the beginning of the operation. So, Bob still has a copy of the communique. We got him to read it a bit for us. Si vous tentez quoi que ce soit. The kidnappers were not only confirming that they had Cross, they were asking for a lawyer to negotiate on their behalf. And they had someone in mind. A guy called Bernard Mergler. Bob makes a call on the radio and then points the car back to Rue de Recollet. It's noon by the time government negotiator Robert de Maris arrives at Rue de Recollet. It had taken him a while to convince Bernard Mergler to come with him. When Mergler learned that the Longteau group wanted him to negotiate on their behalf, he wasn't having any of it. Thanks to his earlier dealings with the FLQ, he'd developed a real distaste for the group. But Demers persuaded him to take on the unpleasant job. Demers had already opened up communication with the Cuban consulate. Mergler spent two hours at the consulate sorting out details, and then he and Demers made their way to Rue de Recollet. When I arrived there, the whole sector had been surrounded by soldiers. A few hundred soldiers, one standing beside the other one. There were also sharpshooters on the roof of the surrounding uh, houses. And um, we stepped out of the car in front of the house where Cross was detained. On the street, Demers hands Mergler the government offer to the kidnappers. They'd arranged safe passage to Cuba in exchange for Cross's freedom. The time to negotiate has passed, he says. They either take it or they leave it. Then he tells Mergler to go knock on the door, give them the offer, and confirm it's really Cross in there. Everyone watches as Mergler walks up to the front door and is finally let in. 
Five minutes pass before Mergler emerges. It's definitely cross in there, he tells Damaris. But there's more. No. They may accept your offer, but they have a few conditions. Uh, They would like two of their group who were arrested the night before to be part of the group. They would also want the leader of the gang was married. They had a wife and a kid. Uh, He says that he wanted his wife and kid to come with him to Cuba. Damaris agrees. The kidnappers also want a journalist from Le Devoir to be part of the group sent to Cuba, someone to document their time there. Damaris gets the reporter on the phone, but perhaps unsurprisingly, despite the offer of a scoop, his answer is no. With that out of the way, Damaris lays out the plan for Mergler. We will have a uh, police car in front of them to uh, indicate the streets which you will have take to go to the place where the exchange is to be done, which was an island in the middle of the St. Lawrence that you could uh, go to by taking the Jacques Cartier Bridge, uh, Lille St. Helene. And um, you will also have uh, half a dozen motors. Motorcycles. Motorcycles in front of the police car. And there will be another police car behind them in case their car goes down during the trip so that they can exchange car. Mergler then walks to the garage, opens the door, and steps aside as a car pulls out. Uh, Mergler, I must say, uh, courageously uh, entered into the car, sat in front with them, uh, in the back with the cross, and uh, before leaving, he looked at me and knew what he, how he felt and what he thought. Some of the windows of the car are covered with newspapers. Cross is in the back seat between two of the kidnappers, both of whom are holding sticks of dynamite wired with a dead man's switch. The idea is, if anything goes wrong, the kidnapper lets go of the button and boom. Or at least that's what police all thought at the time. Turns out they were actually dummy bombs. But Demers knew that Mergler was trusting him in that moment to make good on his deal. By that time, as you can imagine, there were thousands of people around the place. And so, but uh, a parade like that, you know, they went through the crowd and right down 15 minutes later, they were at St. Helena Island and Cross was released and they were given to the Cubans. Once they got to St. Helena Island, the Cubans took custody of the kidnappers. They were promptly bundled into a helicopter that whisked them away to Dorval Airport. That's where a Canadian Forces plane was waiting. James Cross was met by public officials and his daughter. He asked for a meal, barbecued chicken and a nice bottle of French wine. Cross would later complain he never actually got the wine. Then he was taken to Jewish General Hospital for some tests. He'd lost a lot of weight, but he was in remarkably good shape. The next day, he met with police before heading to the office to see his staff. Then he boarded a flight to London, where he was finally reunited with his wife. At the airport, he faced the microphones. Surrounded by reporters, he sat and held his wife's hand. And for the first time since his abduction, he spoke freely. I hope you'll all understand that I'm very tired. And it's been a a terrible strain, not only over the last eight weeks, but particularly over the last few days since, since Wednesday evening when the, the denouement of this crisis started. And I just want to say two things. And firstly, how marvelous it is to be back in the world, as it were, after having been shut up in close confinement for eight weeks. And the thing that strikes me most is how important the sort of simple things of life are, which one takes for granted when we're living our everyday life. And suddenly when you're deprived of things like life with your family, talking to your friends, of just breathing fresh air and seeing the sun, you suddenly realize how important all these things are. 
And the second thing I want to say is how wonderful it is to be back in England. I, uh, lots of times the last eight weeks, I never thought I was going to be able to drink, drink a pint of bitter again. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to be back again with my family. My wife, who's, I think, gone through a terrible time in this past eight weeks, because at least I knew what was happening to me, but she didn't, and refused to allow me to communicate with her, except on very few occasions. This is really the, the happiest day of my life. With the Longtow group hustled off to Cuba, police were left to track down the killers of Pierre Laporte. For two months, despite the presence of soldiers in the street, despite the sweeping powers afforded police by the War Measures Act, Paul Rose and his group had evaded capture. They'd been helped on their way by a network of supporters. One of those supporters was an accountant named Michel Viget, who was sympathetic to the FLQ. He eventually got them set up in his old farmhouse in Saint-Luc. It was about a half an hour from the house where Pierre Laporte was killed. They dug a shaft in a tunnel under the basement floor for a hiding place. By late November, police already had the farmhouse under surveillance. Twice, they'd actually searched the house to no avail. But on the third visit in late December, police noticed strange sounds in the basement. When they confronted Vijay, he caved and he revealed the bunker under the floor. And that, for all intents and purposes, was the end of the FLQ. The soldiers left the streets of Montreal on January 4th, though the War Measures Act wouldn't officially expire until April. All told, 497 people would be arrested under the act. In the first three days alone, more than 1,600 raids were carried out in Montreal. Only 62 of those arrested would even be charged with anything, let alone terrorism. Only two would ever face the courts. Among the police and officials I spoke to, I got the sense that the WMA did little or nothing to speed the investigations of the kidnappings of Cross and Laporte. At best, they say, it helped keep a lid on things to quiet the revolutionary noise. Marc Lalonde was Pierre Trudeau's chief of staff when the War Measures Act came into effect. And through all these years, he hasn't wobbled a bit in his defense of Trudeau's decision to employ it. I think he was damn right uh, about it all. Once you uh, have uh, people who think they are going to change our democratic system uh, through violence, uh, this is uh, completely unacceptable and measures should be taken to prevent this. And if you see that this kind of movement uh, gathers momentum, uh, you have to take measures to to stop uh, that momentum. And uh, this is what... uh, I think they led to the adoption of the War Measures Act. Uh, all along, Trudeau was doing it, if you wish, uh, a contre-coeur against his own uh, internal uh, approach. Uh, but uh, when you compare to uh, the threat uh, and what happened to Pierre Laporte in particular, and uh, the threat of assassination of uh, Uh, James Cross, this was a a much more damaging and dramatic phenomenon than uh, the erroneous arrest of a number of people who uh, may still be grieving about it. These people can blame uh, Mr. Trudeau or uh, the federal government if they wish, uh, but I think they are wrong. I think they are completely wrong. I'm pretty sure Denise Boucher sees it differently. Paul Rose would stand trial for the murder of Pierre Laporte. He defended himself and used the courtroom as a grandstand for his ideology. He hurled insults at the judge and the prosecution lawyers. On March 12, 1971, Paul Rose was convicted of murder. He received two life sentences with no chance of parole for 10 years. In one of the most famous photographs of this period, the shaggy, scruffy Rose is led from the courtroom. He has his fist raised in the air. His last words to the court were, Long live a free Quebec. Power to the people. We will triumph. Ten years later, a new picture of Pierre Laporte's last moments would emerge. 
Just this week, the Quebec Justice Minister released a long-awaited Duchesne report, which revealed that Pierre Laporte was probably strangled by accident. In an attempt to restrain him from yelling out, someone grabbed and held the neck of his sweater from behind, apparently tightening a gold neck chain inadvertently. The kidnappers and the police say it was still murder, but the report states that the man convicted of that murder was not present when Mr. Laporte died. Paul Rose is still serving... To Paul Rose, it didn't matter which among them had choked the life out of Pierre Laporte. It was a collective action and the responsibility was shared. He just happened to be the one to do the hard time. In other interviews, Rose was intentionally evasive about whether it was deliberate or accidental. But Robert de Maris was careful to remind me that in the instance of a death in kidnapping, that death is always considered a murder. After his release from prison in 1982, Paul Rose gained a master's degree in sociology. He disavowed violence and became involved in the labor movement and fringe left politics. He died in 2013 following a stroke. As for the Longteau cell, their exile away from Quebec society would last almost a decade. Jacques Cossette Trudel's fate had been sealed in the negotiations on Rue de Recollet. Police delivered him and Louise Longteau to Dorval Airport. And at 7.45 that evening, a Canadian Armed Forces Yukon took off with them on board. It was a surreal moment, he says. After all, Cuba was the revolutionary model for these guys. But the shine wore off pretty quickly. Meeting other revolutionaries and reading about Marx, Che Guevara, Lenin, Cosette Trudeau realized that Quebec, for all its problems, well, it wasn't exactly Latin America. Quand tu regardes tout ça, puis que tu repenses au Québec, tu dis, ouais, Canada was not, after all, a dictatorship. In retrospect, while the cause was just, Cosette Trudel came to see the methods they used as excessive. In the end, Cross's kidnappers would spend eight years abroad, in Cuba and in France. And in the meantime, Quebec was changing, and changing quickly. The Quebec changed. The Quebec semblait vouloir commencer à vivre de façon plus moderne, plus démocratique, etc. Bourassa... Premier Robert Bourassa opened a number of ministries, developed social services, and the student protesters Cosette Trudel had been hanging out with in 68 and 69, well, they were climbing the ladders of the public service. They changed Quebec from the inside, not from the margins. In retrospect, Cassette Trudel likened the events leading up to October 1970 to a period of teenage rebellion. And when he and Louise finally came home in 1978, the province was just a really different place. The Parti Québécois was in power. Laws to establish French as the official language had been put in place. And the provincial government was preparing to hold its first referendum on whether to separate from Canada. The public sympathy for the FLQ that was evident in 1970, well, it was gone now. And when they faced the judge on their return from exile, nobody showed up to support them. Cross's kidnappers were accused of having abandoned the province by fleeing to Cuba. They were no longer seen as true revolutionaries. Cosette Trudel did do some time. He was sentenced to five years probation and two years in provincial jail. But he was released on bail after only eight months. And then he kept a low profile. He's spoken very little about his time in the FLQ, but he told us he felt a sense of duty to share his perspective on this chapter of Quebec's history. Cosette Trudel never considered that by what he called borrowing an Englishman for two months, he would live with the consequences the rest of his life. We asked Cosette Trudel if he has any regrets. He says he regrets ever meeting Louise Langteau, the mother of his two children. Not for who she was as a person, but because it was through her that he connected with her brother, Jacques Langteau, and the FLQ. 
et il euh, y avait une force de polarisation tellement forte dans cette famille-là. Ça m'a amené au... The Longto family could be persuasive. And through their persuasion, he came to believe in the righteousness of their actions. Ça, c'est un regret que j'ai. Parce que je peux pas dire que je regrette d'avoir fait un enlèvement. But he does not express regret about the abduction of James Cross. Avez-vous l'impression de devoir des excuses à James Cross pour ce qui s'est passé? Non, j'ai pas fait d'excuses à M. Cross. Je n'en ferai pas non plus. Unlike Jacques Langteau, Cosette Trudel hasn't apologized to James Cross or his family, and he says he won't. Je reconnais cependant que on a pas mal perturbé sa vie. Jacques Cosette Trudel owns the kidnapping to an extent. He recognizes that they turned Cross's life upside down. But it wasn't personal. He says Cross represented the British Empire, and he must have known the risks. And Cross was not physically abused, although he admits he was psychologically tormented. He recognizes that they did him harm. But he says Cross was abducted during a troubled period in Quebec's history. The FLQ had reasons to act that way. Je referais la même affaire. And if he had to do it again, in the same context, Cosette Trudel says he would do the same. So how do you start a revolution? For one brief moment in October of 1970, it must have felt as though the FLQ had found the answer. With a packed arena cheering them on and the feeling that the people were joining them in the fight, The FLQ had seized a global political moment where radical social change seemed not just possible, but inevitable. It was also a moment when there were plenty of young men, and they were almost all men, willing to plant bombs, to draw and to shed blood in the name of something bigger. With its appeal to Francophone identity and working-class grievances, the FLQ seemed to give ordinary Québécois a point of entry to its radical left political message. I think that was the biggest surprise for me in creating this series, learning that the promise of Quebec independence was the sweetener to sell the deeper FLQ message, a message of social and economic revolution. The FLQ manifesto hardly makes mention of language. It's about class struggle above all else. But in an ugly irony, most of the FLQ's victims were working-class francophones. And the death of Pierre Laporte, well, that created such public revulsion that any delusion of popular support for the FLQ's revolutionary vision evaporated. So after seven years of bombings, robberies, and kidnapping, it was over, just like that. Its active members were either in jail or in exile, or they just moved on and mellowed out. Some former FLQ members are unrepentant to this day. Others, including Pierre Vallière, disavowed the FLQ's terror tactics altogether. They pursued social justice by peaceful means. Remember Gaetan de Rosier, that skinny kid who delivered the bomb that killed Therese Morin in 1966? Well, by 1996, he'd risen to the role of deputy minister in the provincial government. It's hard to calculate whether the FLQ helped the cause or hindered it, but separatism, or at least a slightly watered-down version of it, was soon the mainstream. The Parti Québécois first came to power in 1976 with the plan to give Quebec more independence from Canada. Under the leadership of René Lévesque, it sold the idea of sovereignty association. This arrangement would let the province levy all its taxes, vote on all its laws, sign all its treaties while remaining in a customs union with Canada. Twice, they'd put this option to the people of Quebec by way of referendum. But voters rejected it in 1980, and again, very narrowly, in 1995. But even without a sharp break from Canada, Quebec has carved out a singular place for itself in the Federation. When it was in government, the Parti Québécois entrenched French language protections and pushed further with progressive social reforms begun in the Quiet Revolution. 
It's important to remember how quickly Quebec was changing in the 60s. Education, health, labor, social welfare, all that change was happening the boring old democratic way, but it was transforming society. But Quebec is not a northern Cuba. It's not the branch plant backwater of Maurice Duplessis either, but it's certainly not the socialist utopia imagined by Pierre Vallière and Charles Gagnon. For a brief time, the Parti Québécois was led by Pierre-Carl Pelladeau, a billionaire publishing magnate. So much for the revolution. I've told this story from the privileged perch of an outsider. I have no skin in the game. Inside Quebec, this story and the way it gets told is still deeply personal and emotional. I'll never forget sitting in Denise Boucher's living room and watching her begin to tremble with rage at the memory of Pierre Trudeau and the War Measures Act, a visceral response nearly 50 years later. I guess that's why, as Philippe Fizeme told me, these struggles never end, they just take new forms. But wherever you stand ideologically with regards to the FLQ and its campaign, your last thought should be for the people who wound up as collateral in their little war. Wilfred O'Neill, Walter Ligia, Therese Morin, Jean Corbeau, Leslie McWilliams, Alfred Pinnish, Jean d'Arc Saint-Germain, and of course, Pierre Laporte. I also want to add some special thanks. It wouldn't be possible to tell this story without the work of some great historians and journalists who came before. Marc Laurendeau and Louis Fournier have written authoritative books on the FLQ period, and they were also very kind and generous with their time. Darcy Jenish has made this story accessible to Anglophone readers with his excellent book. And I want to thank the staff at the Quebec National Archives for their enthusiasm in pulling together historical documents for us. Mostly, I want to thank everyone who invited us into their homes to share their stories while tolerating my caveman French. The series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Plourd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris O. Mixing by Graham McDonald. The digital producer is Emily Connell. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and our executive producer is Arif Nurani. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.